Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Nina Pantic, and Irina Falcone is joining shortly along with our guest, USTA CEO, Mike Douse. Mike started his role at the USTA in January of last year, just in time for the craziest year in tennis history. While it's been a challenging year for everyone, since tennis is such a socially distanced sport, 3 million new players picked up a tennis racket in 2020. Overall, there was a 22% increase in tennis participation, rising to over 21 million active players. As a leader of the USTA, Mike has been at the forefront of supporting tennis growth at all levels, especially as grassroots tennis has enjoyed this boom. He was thrown into the fire during the U.S. Open when the USTA navigated uncharted territories to pull off a Grand Slam amidst a raging pandemic. He shares what went into making the impossible happen in New York and how he expects the 2021 U.S. Open to look like later this year. So let's get into our insightful interview with USTA CEO, Mike Douse. Okay, Mike Douse, welcome to the show. It is an honor having you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to having this conversation. We want to start off by asking, you know, where in the world you are and how things are going as the CEO of the USTA in the midst of what is still a pandemic. Well, thanks, Nina. I'm actually at the campus today of the USTA in Orlando or Lake Nona, and the outdoor courts are actually booming. Uh, our local programming is up over 20%. I think everyone who's probably listening or watching this has heard the news that tennis is booming as part of the pandemic. Uh, by no means has it been easy, and there's been challenges for our industry, but in the last few months, literally millions of people have discovered our sport, and they're out playing tennis for the first time. Why do you think that is? Is it because tennis is so socially distant? Because I know at first, when the pandemic began last March, places were closed. Tennis courts were chained up. What made that difference to get courts open and get people to pick up a tennis racket? Yeah, I think as we learn more about the pandemic and how it spread, the medical experts realized that tennis is safe. It is a social distance sport. But I also think about when we were all in uh, lockdown, and sometimes we still are, what are the things we miss? We miss socialization. We miss exercise, we miss fun, and even intellectual stimulation. And tennis provides all that. And so I think for what we call latent tennis players, people who haven't played for a long time, or brand new people, uh, they're discovering that tennis offers all that. It's amazing how uh, the U.S. Open, I have to just dive into it, the U.S. Open was able to pull off an event last year, and uh, I was actually able to commentate. And it was was an incredible experience, and uh, just props to you to be able to make it happen. Um, what was your journey through that? I can't even imagine the stress and the questions and the doubt. Well, first of all, it doesn't start with me. It was definitely a team effort. And when I say team effort, it was uh, the USTA. I mean, Stacey Allister, our tournament director, did a fantastic job. But outside of the USTA, we had to work very closely with uh, ATP, WTA, and then think about all the governments that were involved, right? It's a global sport. We had players from over 60 countries come in. Uh, we had just in the United States, we had to work with the federal government, the state of New York, the city of New York, and Nassau County. 
So it was truly a team effort by everyone to pull off, which was really the first global sporting event to be held during the pandemic. And uh, we set three guiding principles. We said, can we do it safely? Is it good for the sport of tennis? And financially, does it make sense for us to host a tournament? And in hindsight, looking back, fortunately, we're able to check the box on all three of those. I know that there was a lot of speculation months leading up and weeks leading up whether or not it was going to happen. Was there ever a time where you were just absolutely doubting yourself or you were like, oh, this is for sure going to happen? Or what were your emotions? Was it just a roller coaster for you? Absolutely roller coaster. And we were having daily calls, as you can imagine, planning. But once a week, we're having sometimes twice a week uh, calls with our medical advisor uh, advisory group. And we had um, medical experts to really understand infectious disease. And at the end of each one of those calls, we'd always say, what's the percentage? What's the chance we're going to have this tournament? And I will say it varied anywhere from 10% up to 100%. And it would go up and down throughout the pandemic. So yes, it was never going to happen for uh, certain at any one point. And even once we officially said, yes, let's go at the end of June, it ebbed and flowed from June to August to ultimately September, even until the last day, we finally knew it was, we were able to pull it off. You guys had 99.97% of your 13,000 COVID tests come back as negative, which is pretty astounding. And none of them happened, you know, on site or anything. No, no cases emerged, which is a feat, especially because at that point, looking back, that was still a pretty, pretty roaring part of the pandemic. How did you get through the negative backlash? People were commenting and reacting and there's haters and you personally only started in January of 2020, like being thrown in as the face of this during it, before it, after it. Are you happy with how things turned out and how did you handle any of the haters? Couldn't be happier with how it turned out. And I think we just, at the end, we were always anchored in those guiding principles I talked about earlier. And that is, could we do it safely? And as non-medical experts, it wasn't for us to make that decision. We had to really lie, uh, rely on the medical experts as well as the government officials. So they were great allies for us during this process. Two, is it good for tennis? Boy, in hindsight, we absolutely say yes, right? We think it played a part in, in exciting and exposing tennis to all these new people that we talked about in the beginning of this call. Maybe people were at home desperate to watch some sports on TV, which really weren't happening at the time. And to see tennis, maybe it triggered some thoughts for them to get out and play. And, you know, financially, doesn't make sense. We did, uh, our net operating income was off $180 million without fans. So it was a significant hit. But having said that, we were able to put money into the tennis ecosystem by playing, uh, paying the compensation to the players, the people we were able to employ. And we were able to generate some revenue off our, our media partnerships. And that money we were able to channel back into community tennis. So, so that worked as well. So on that note, how does that look for 2021? You've had financial loss in 2020, but now you're hoping to have the Grand Slam far more normal this year. Is there a bounce back plan and how will the 2021 U.S. Open look? Yeah, so um, the crystal ball is telling us we're cautiously optimistic. We're pretty confident we're going to have fans, but it's a big difference financially. We have 25% fans versus 50, versus 75, versus 100. So that's still unknown. And so we have to be really prudent in the coming months and how we manage that. You know, as, as far as how we made it work in 2020, I think everyone knows we went through a, a significant restructuring of the USTA. We downsized our organization by 25%. So that was a challenge. Uh, we were fortunate that we had pretty good reserves and we were able to extend some lines of credit to get us through 2020. 
those levers aren't there to pull in 2021. So it's very important uh, that we do have fans back and in significant numbers for, for 2021. Obviously, 100% fans would be fantastic. But realistically, what would you say the capacity would be? Yeah, I think 100% would be great. We're not ruling it out, but we don't think it's realistic. Uh, I think there's still going to be maybe some hesitation for global travel and whatnot. But I think we'd be very happy if we could get to that 75% range. Um, And that feels pretty good right now. But again, we're all going through this for the first time, right? We've learned so much in the last 12 months. Uh, What is it today? March 1st. And it was about March 15th a year ago, this first hit. And who would have ever guessed that we'd be here talking a year later about fans for a second year U.S. Open? It's just crazy times. If there's one thing I think that we do know is that we don't know anything (laughs) or what the future holds. But you were the first Grand Slam to pull this off after the pandemic started. And now the Australian Open pulled off what most thought was literally impossible. They created a bubble in that the entire country is a bubble. But then once players were in and passed the quarantine, they were kind of free. What are your takeaways from the Australian Open and what they pulled off? Well, kudos to them for pulling it off. And let's not forget Roland Garros. They you know, moved their dates and pulled it off in late September, early October. And I think it's fabulous. It's all good for the sport. Um, I know there was challenges for many in all three of our tournaments, not just Australia, but also Roland Garros and ourselves. But again, at the end of the day, uh, you could probably anchor it back to our three principles. Uh, they were able to do it uh, in a healthy way. You know, no one really got sick. Uh, in any high numbers, we know it was good for tennis. You know, financially, they'll have to speak for themselves whether it made sense or not. But at the end of the day, it was good for tennis, and that's exciting. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hello, everyone. You're listening to an episode of the Tennis.com podcast with USTA CEO Mike Douse. He's telling us what it was like to be the face of the U.S. Open during a crazy 2020 season. Keep listening for more. We've talked about what's good for tennis, and of course, having Grand Slams increases the interest of people playing tennis. But we started off talking about how entry-level, grassroots, recreational tennis has picked up in this pandemic because tennis is socially distant. But the numbers are kind of insane. 22% increase in tennis participation in 2020. That's over 21 million people playing tennis, 3 million of which are brand new players. What are your thoughts on this incredible stats? I mean, it's honestly, it's it's insane. It's exciting. Um, It reminds me of the tennis boom uh, when I was a young kid in the 70s and 80s that uh, people were just coming out in the millions to play the sport, and they're finding it again now. Um, I think as the USTA, we always say our our first strategic priority is to attract, engage, and retain a new generation of diverse tennis players. You know, through the help of the pandemic, we're definitely attracting. Now, as a collective industry, we have a real responsibility that these new players have a great time playing the sport and that we get them into programs. Uh, So they stick with the sport and ultimately become what we call core players who maybe play at least 10 times a year and really enjoy tennis as the sport of a lifetime that we all know it is. You mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that it's all about maintaining and retaining those players. What do you find is the biggest challenge in getting those entry level people and, you know, young kids to stick with tennis? 
Right. I think the biggest thing, tennis does, I think we have to acknowledge that the learning curve is a little steep in those first few times you go out and play. But once you get over that learning curve, it's an incredible game that people of all ages, all backgrounds can play for a lifetime. So we just want to make sure when people come out to play that they have access to finding what we call great providers. It could be a local coach at a, at a public park or at a private facility. And just helping marry new players with these coaches and providers, I think will go a long way in getting these people to stick with the sport for a long time. What's harder, getting a player to pick up the sport for the first time or getting a player to stay in the sport after they've already played before? Research will tell you it's getting them to pick up a racket, but before that, it's getting people active. We did a lot of research in the past trying to get people to play tennis, and we realized that they were just generally inactive. That was a big, big problem. So really participation in tennis really starts a step before that we need to get people active in society, get kids back into PE classes and playing sports. We truly have an uh, inactivity and obesity pandemic in our country that ultimately is no help to tennis. So we actually need to take a broader lens and work with all our peers, not just in tennis, but in all sports to try to get more people active. Once they're active, their ability to get into our, into our sport tennis is, is much, much higher. Even though you guys had financial loss last year, you still put money into developing programs to get people into tennis and staying in tennis. How do you decide on doing what money goes where? Is it up to you? I mean, you're the CEO, so I imagine yes. But is it, it must have been a challenge because you were losing money from the Grand Slam, but you're trying to put money into programs and developing the sport. Well, by no means is it my decision all by myself by any means. It, it's a real collective decision. But uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, I'm my first year in the job, and I went on an extensive listening tour when I first started and talked to hundreds of people. And I think what came clear, everyone was passionate about the USTA mission, which is growing and promoting the sport of tennis. And that's never going to happen in a centralized office. It's going to happen out in the trenches at the grassroots level. So that's why everyone agrees anytime there's money to flow, it needs to flow out to the communities to get people playing tennis. So that's really how that decision came about is let's get the money out to the providers and the coaches out in the trenches to, again, engage these players and make sure they play for a long time. So one of my favorite questions to typically ask our guests is how did you get here from uh wherever you were before to now you're the CEO of the USA. That's, that's a huge jump. Well, I, this is why I'm so passionate about tennis because I was fortunate enough. I, I came from a background with not a lot of money and, and tennis was a sport that really provided opportunities for me in my whole life uh, to see the world and meet so many different people and make a living out of it uh, because I was exposed to tennis when I was seven, eight years old at the public parks. And so tennis became a big part of my life. And through that, I was fortunate enough to play some college tennis and then go on to work in the industry for Wilson Sporting Goods. Uh, so a long history in tennis. Uh, and then last year, I just had the opportunity when this job opened to, to come to the USTA and hopefully uh, you know, give back and get other people playing the sport because I know it was so generous to me. And, and that's something that's uh, kind of my purpose now, trying to get people to play tennis. So when you were seven and eight years old, what was it about the sport that retained you? Well, I think it was just, it was so much fun and liberating and it, it was so much great exercise and it was something my family could do together. I could do it with my friends. Um, I remember playing at the public parks with people from all backgrounds and all different ages. And I just thought it was such a cool thing to do. And it had some individualism to it as well that personally uh, I liked and enjoyed. Uh, and it's just it's stuck with me ever since. Do you still play now? 
I do. Yes, I uh, actually played twice this weekend, and I probably play two to three times a week on average. Are you two still playing? Yes, definitely. We play all the yeah. time. And then I, I, this is totally left field, but you guys have pickleball courts now too. How's that industry picked up in the USCA campus? Yes, and we're adding uh, paddle courts as well in the coming weeks. So back to that topic we talked about earlier, we're going to get people playing tennis. They have to be active first. So to me, I see all racket sports as a, as a gateway to tennis. If you're playing pickleball or paddle or anything for that matter that is a racket sports, the chances of you playing tennis become much higher. And also think about all the tennis facilities out there. And, you know, unfortunately, we've lost hundreds, if not thousands of tennis facilities over the years because it's financially challenging sometimes. And if they have more revenue streams from pickleball and other racket sports, it helps our facilities stay in business as well. So, so big fans of uh, all, all things paddle and racket for that matter. I'm very interested in pickle and paddle. So I, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, back to your tennis background, just for another second, though, I know that you played four years at Portland. And in one of the years, you won the most inspirational player. What, like, what were you inspiring? What was this about? Because I think that's a very unique award. Uh, you guys have done your homework. Um, I'm always a fan. Uh, uh, there's a couple things you can control. It's attitude and effort, right? You can't really control your athleticism sometimes, uh, which I didn't always have the greatest athleticism, but I could control my attitude and effort. And I'm hoping that's what inspired some of the teammates to, to vote, uh, vote for me for that award. Ah, that makes sense. Okay. So when you look at 2020, I mean, obviously we do not know what the future holds. What are, what's the industry goal? What's the USTA goal that you have and that you tell your employees to kind of just, what's your mission statement, if you will, for the year? Yeah, well, really we have a mission statement, which is we, we look at it more than a year. It's a long-term one, which is uh, to grow and promote the sport of tennis. And then we align strategies against those. And that's what we try to keep the organization focused against is the mission and our strategies and our strategies support the missions. But what I push the team here is when we wake up in the morning, we look at our calendar and our to-do list. Do those things anchor back to our strategic choices and our mission? If they don't, we need to probably recalibrate and start spending our time in the right areas and not getting lost in what may be white noise or things that ultimately uh, don't support our mission. Hey listeners, this is an episode of the Tennis.com podcast with USTA CEO Mike Douse. He's sharing how he expects the 2021 US Open to look like later this season. Keep listening. I have to ask, this might be a really stupid question, but like when the CEO job opened up at the USTA, is there like some secret website where you know to apply for these CEO jobs or is there a short list that they came up with and then they reached out to you? Well, there is a website. I was I didn't find it. Uh, I was just fortunate enough that uh, a recruiter had reached out to me about the position, and it was fortuitous timing because I'd been at Wilson a long time, and Wilson had actually gone through a transaction with new owners. So the timing was it was just right for me to probably try something new in my career. And then the USTA job with Gordon's retirement, I was able to apply for it, and fortunately uh, get the position. And that meant moving to Lake Nona. So since you've moved to Florida, I know there's been different phases because of the pandemic, but what is a day in the life of a CEO at the USDA like? It's doing what we're doing now, having Zoom calls and Google out, uh, Outlook calls, a ton of calls. You know, unfortunately, I, I'm a big proponent of getting out and working with people in the trenches, but I, I was uh, in the job only about 70 days when the pandemic had hit. Uh, you probably know we have 17 sections, and my goal was to get to 12 of the sections last year. 
In my first 60 days, I've gotten to four of them, and then that had shut down. Uh, so I think to answer your question, let's revisit that a year ago, a year from now, or a year and a half from now, hopefully when things are more normal, because uh, to answer that now would not be a fair question. That's 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 okay. I understand. And and looking forward, I mean, people should be excited for the U.S. Open this year because it is going to be bigger and better than last year. That's guaranteed, right? So we should feel this way. Absolutely. And I, I had a meeting on it this morning with our team, and we're planning a lot of exciting things. And again, the unknown is the amount of fans, but we are definitely optimistic that we're going to have fans there this year. Because it was a little strange last year walking around the uh, you know, Billie Jean King National Tennis Center with no fans. It was really eerie. And, you know, in my prior job at, at Wilson and being in the industry a long time, I've probably been to 15 or 20 U.S. Opens. And it was by far the, the strangest one. It's funny because you think that it was strange for the players. And uh, I spoke to a lot of them. They all said it was probably the most relaxed environment they had ever been in just because they were able to walk around freely. They didn't have fans all over them. They were just players out there playing some tennis and uh it was a very relaxed environment so it might have been eerie for you but the players i think enjoyed it true and as you know the the players all want the luxury suites again where they had that opportunity (laughs) this year to to hang out there to help us with the social distancing but we have to have our partners have access to those suites come next year i know i selfishly would rather things go back to how they were completely because you know doing press and interviews via zoom it's great to have access when we can't physically be somewhere but it's not the same and i really hope that that part of the sporting world comes back to how it used to be but i don't know if you feel the same way if media and having broadcast people on on the on the site is an important thing or not at all oh i do i mean this is a peak all businesses are a people business. We need to be together, working together. There's definitely things we've learned and there may be a little less travel and some more virtual meetings, but at the end of the day, there's no substitution for people interacting one-on-one and in person. I agree. I think, I think I completely agree with that. Yeah. Even this, like, I'm glad that we got to speak with you on Zoom, but it's also nicer to be able to meet in person. And I got to appreciate that. And thank you for your time because we've managed to get through quite a few things. But when it comes to, before we let you go, when it comes to grassroots tennis, do you have any advice you give people when they're thinking of starting tennis that you yourself would be like, here's why you should play the game? I just think it's the sport of a lifetime. I mean, we literally have people playing at 85, 90 years of age and people playing at four or five years of age. And it doesn't discriminate against gender, ethnicity. It's, it's truly a sport of a lifetime. And it's a global sport. And it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. And it's what we talked about earlier, right? It's exercise. It's social distancing. It's fun. It's intellectual stimulating. It's hard to find a sport that checks all those boxes. And tennis definitely does. Well, I look forward to playing it for, you know, 60 more years myself, Nina. So, uh, you know, thank you again, once again, for uh, taking the time. And we look forward to seeing what 2021 U.S. Open looks like. Likewise. Well, thank you guys for everything you're doing for tennis. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up as we bring you new episodes every week. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also watch the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, as well as the entire Tennis Channel team for their support. Thanks for listening. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 